0: Some years ago, Radio National asked listeners to vote for the speeches they considered the most memorable. Amongst those that made the cut were the Sermon on the Mount, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Mark Antony's speech over the bleeding corpse of Caesar, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream, Churchill's We Shall Fight on the Beaches, Paul Keating's Redfern address in 1992, and of course, echoing Mark Antony, Gough's unforgettable dismissal speech, delivered over his own political corpse on the steps of Parliament House. The great speeches, not only mark points in history; they make history, sending us down a particular path, or indeed to the moon, as Kennedy's words did. But what about the speeches that were never heard? How different! Would the world look today, had Edward never declared his abdication, had Japan's Emperor Hirohito apologised for World War II, had JFK announced an aerial bombardment and ground invasion of Cuba? In every one of these instances, a speech existed that could have changed the course of history had it been given. And they're just some of the unheard speeches that have been collected by my guest, jeff nussbaum a prolific speechwriter himself having pen words spoken by the current president of the united states but not thank god by his predecessor jeff's new book is undelivered the unseen speeches that would have rewritten history welcome to our little wireless program and congratulations it's a brilliant idea now the book has been a long time coming jeff
1: it has it has the seed of the book was planted Uh, Over 20 years ago, when as a young speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore, uh, I was involved with helping write three speeches he was prepared to give on election night, a victory speech, a concession speech, and then a speech in which we thought he might win the Electoral College, but lose the popular vote. At the time, it would have required some explanation as to what winning the Electoral College means and why that's a win. Um, Americans have learned the hard way over a couple of elections recently. Uh, that indeed, an electoral college win
0: is still a win. In the end, that night, Al gave no speech at all, Jeff. He he didn't. Uh, the Florida was too close
1: to call. The campaign chairman came out early, early in the morning and said, "Our campaign continues." And the great irony is that. I completely lost those three speeches that I was holding. Shame, and I, and I, Jeff. And, shame on <laughs>
0: you. Shame <laughs> on
1: indeed, you. Indeed, And so the the inciting event that set this idea in motion is nowhere to be found. I mean, I even found the teleprompter operator from two thousand <laughs> and said, you know, can we can we can we see if it's still in your system? Uh, and it wasn't. So my hope is that maybe the publication of this book brings some of the missing ones out of the woodwork. But but at that moment. I realized there's so many other occasions beyond politics where the outcome is so in doubt that there's a draft prepared for it and history really uh, really does rest on a razor's edge.
0: So from hanging chads to an extraordinary book, the unseen speeches you've collected have great historical relevance. But is this book also an ode to your contemporaries, knowing the hours they would have dedicated to crafting these words that were never heard?
1: There's a there's a joke in speechwriting circles about a speechwriter who dies and is given the choice between heaven and hell, and he asks first to see hell, and and there he sees uh, thousands of speechwriters hammering away on thousands of keyboards on deadline, and says this is horrible, show me heaven, and there he sees thousands of speechwriters hammering away at thousands of keyboards on deadline, and says. looks just like hell and saint peter says oh no up here we use their material so so (laughs) indeed indeed the difference between agony and ecstasy is sometimes the delivery of the speech but but what i did try to do in each chapter is not only excavate a chapter in history that is less well known and share the speech that would have accompanied it but give a peek behind the curtain of, of how these speeches get written how uh, at the March on Washington where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, how the organizers were trying to orchestrate the various speakers uh, and how that didn't always uh, work well, with the speakers well, we, who wanted we'll to get say on, their own we'll, thing. We'll yeah. get on to Luther yeah.
0: King and John Lewis in just a second, but we haven't got time for this detour, but I'm well aware of some very famous speeches where there's been endless disputation afterwards between the man who wrote the speech and the person who delivered it, often deeply acrimonious. But, okay, 1963, March on Washington, Martin Luther King's dream, but the speech given could have gone very differently.
1: Indeed, there were two speeches that day that could have gone very differently. One is Martin Luther King, whose advisors wanted him to give a much stronger, slightly angrier speech that they titled Normalcy Never Again. The idea being that uh, some Southerners were saying, when things return to normalcy, we can make some progress on civil rights. And King's advisors wanted him to go directly at that argument and say there will be normalcy never again in this country. King, ultimately, he had given a version of the I Have a Dream speech dozens and dozens of times before. Um, And one of the things he said afterwards is when you're up there preaching, it's like an airplane circling. And you need to know where your landing strip is. And so in searching for a landing strip, he went into the I have a dream uh, peroration from memory. And afterwards, King's advisors were a little disappointed because they felt that he had almost done a wormed over greatest hits album. Um, Whereas I tell clients now and I tell people I work for King proved in that speech lots of things, but he also proved that it's a hundredth time you say the exact same thing that people finally, finally hear it. So that's one bookend is the dream. The other bookend is, is the nightmare, effectively. John Lewis was the youngest speaker. He was the fieriest speaker. And he wanted very much to, as he said, put some sting into it. In other words, he didn't want this to be a march in Washington. He wanted it to be a march on Washington. So he was prepared to say things like, um, like we will march through the South through the heart of Dixie, the way Sherman did, the Civil War general. We shall pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground. Um, He said that we can't support Kennedy's civil rights bill because it's too little and too late. He said that to to those who counsel patience, patience is a dirty and nasty word. And this was particularly offensive to the Catholic leadership that had been supporting the march. And so everyone, basically, when they saw Lewis's speech, they said, like, You have to tone it down. I mean, this is going to change the entire tenor of the event. And and even King went up to Lewis and said, John, this doesn't sound like you. And Lewis said, yeah, but it sounds like us. And by us, he meant the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the the young, the young active members of the civil rights movement who had been on the Freedom Rides, who had been firebombed, who had been beaten, who had been arrested. And, And Lewis didn't want to back down. And in the book, I found in the archives this wonderful photo of of John Lewis retreating to the back of the Lincoln Memorial because he has finally agreed to change his speech. And he did it at the urging of A. Philip Randolph, who is the grandfather of this whole endeavour, who who Lewis later said saying no to him would be like saying no to Mother Teresa.
0: (laughs) Now, before we talk about the next undelivered speech, let's have a listen to what Richard Nixon did have to say on the 8th of August, 1974. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Jeff, those weren't the remarks that Nixon had intended to give, were they?
1: No, not at all. What's interesting, though, is a lot of the supporting ideas and evidence remain the same. They were sort of... He he sort of had... Um, a justification in in search of a conclusion. And what I mean by that is he had prepared a speech not resigning. And his argument for not resigning was very similar to the argument he made ultimately for resigning. He was arguing in favor of continuity. He was arguing in favor of American stability. He was arguing in favor of fighting inflation. All those things that he said, America needs a full-time president doing. And one of the things I did in this chapter is I went back, you know, Nixon in his later years and in his post-presidency, especially in America, became almost a cartoonish figure, a a sort of caricature of a villain. But what we forget is that he was incredibly charming and persuasive. And I go back to a speech he gave earlier in his career uh, that is now called the Checkers speech, where he- Well, that changed history. Indeed, indeed, because he was about to be kicked off the ticket with Eisenhower um, for a fundraising scandal. And he gave this incredibly uh, emotive confessional speech. uh, uh, Some people called it a financial striptease about how much money he had and the job he did. And then he said that it became called checkers because um, uh, because he said, look, there was one gift I got that I'm not giving back. And it's this little dog and the dog's name is Checkers. Now, even that, by the way, in the speech was a lie. At that point, he hadn't met the dog. He didn't actually get him at the train station as he described, but still he, Nixon had this moment where people so responded to what he was saying that they wrote into the Republican National Committee by the tens of thousands to well, say, in fact, you got to keep him on the ticket. He instructed
0: them to do so. I'm old enough well, to he, remember he, the he, speech. He, he
1: did accept that he failed to say explicitly. He said, I leave it in your hands. I leave it in the RNC's hands, the Republican National Committee's hands. But he forgot to say, I asked you to write to them. And so he left the stage and crumpled up his papers and threw them to the ground and said, I really loused it up. I forgot to give them the address. (laughs) And yet people still were so moved by it that they wrote in and and he stayed on the ticket. And here again, now at the tail end of his political career, you see Nixon contemplating something similar. In fact, in the non abdication speech, he basically does a um, sort of, if, if, if the checker speech had been a financial striptease, this speech was sort of a scandal striptease. I've listened to the tapes that the judge has asked me to hand over. It doesn't look good for me. You know, he's honest and raw, and 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 really thinks he can thinks he can do it, and and ultimately decides not to because, as I share in this chapter, and there's another chapter about a mayor of Boston in the mid 1970s. The, there's there's something worse than than not being able to do what you want to do, and that worst thing is promising people that you can do it and then not being able to do it. And so he saw the writing on the wall.
0: Let's do a segue now from uh, the White House to Buckingham Palace and tell us about how Edward almost very nearly didn't abdicate. So this chapter was was a wonderful
1: education for me. Um, You know, people who have watched The Crown, members, you know, citizens of the Commonwealth countries uh, know this a little better. But Edward was an interesting character. And there were many people close to him who thought he shouldn't be king to begin with. Um, Well, he was very,
0: very pro-Hitler.
1: Well, certainly that. But even in his youth, he was sort of irresponsible. Tommy Laskell said, quote, the best thing that could happen to him and to the country would be for him to break his neck. Um, You know, King George V said, after I'm dead, the boy will ruin himself within 12 months. Um, But there's another thing, which is, of course, he He was a fluent German speaker. He felt very warmly to Hitler um, and and to to Germany and and spoke uh, in favor uh, of Germany uh, and Hitler sort of as the Nazis rose to power. And so here he is, that's happening on one track. And on another track, he's in in love with a divorcee who has a living ex-husband, Wallace Simpson, and he wants to marry her. And he wants to figure out how he can do this even though it's been made eminently clear to him that he has to either choose the crown or the woman he wants to marry. And he's looking for a way out. And over the course of this evolving scandal, there are several different ideas. But one of the ideas is, can he address the British people and and ask to stay on the throne? Can he basically say, you know, Wallace Simpson doesn't need to be queen, but don't I have the right to have the one thing you, my subjects, enjoy, which is a loving partner. And, and when you look at the speech, people see Churchill's fingerprints all over it. Churchill, you know, as, as his wife described him, as, was the last believer in the divine right of kings. He was a staunch royalist, but he was a backbencher at the time. And Churchill sort of thought, perhaps if I split the parliament into a king's party and an anti-king's party, I can ride the king's party back to power. Um, and so what's a little cloudy in history is exactly how involved Churchill was in the drafting of the speech. We know we know Lord Moncton, who was an advisor to the king, was heavily involved, um, but the king really wanted to appeal directly to the British people and say, it's your choice. It's not my choice. It's not the prime minister's choice. You're my subjects, it's your choice. Uh, and ultimately, and, and I will just say, one note of final drama is, there was such concern that he would give this speech that the Prime Minister, you know, said to the head of the BBC, if the King shows up and wants to go on the radio, don't let him do it.
0: I am speaking to speechwriter Jeff Nussbaum about his extraordinary book, Undelivered, a collection of some of the speeches that would have rewritten history but were never made. Let us uh, now turn to some important apology speeches that were never made. Tell me about Dwight Eisenhower's apology for the failure of the D-Day invasion.
1: Yeah, this chapter is is really... Um, I, I love it for several reasons, um, most of all for what it says about leadership. Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, later President Eisenhower, had a habit before every engagement in battle that he sent his troops into... He imagined its failure and wrote an apology for it. And D-Day was no different. And we see in his journals and his diaries, as D-Day approaches, he's, he's very much reminded of Dunkirk. He's concerned we can get the troops onto the beach, but can't get them off and they'll be massacred there. And so he writes in his haste, the night before the, night before, um, the invasion begins, he writes an apology. And what he would do is he'd write these apologies, put them in his wallet, and, and later on, tear them up, throw them away. Um, in this case, uh, he writes the apology. It's very short in his haste, he misdates it. He, he dates it July 5th, not June 5th. A- and, and he does two other things that I absolutely love here. He initially writes, the troops have been withdrawn. And then he crosses it out and says, I have withdrawn the troops. And then he underlines the words, if any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. And he underlines mine alone. And and for those of us who remember our grammar, what he has done is he has removed the passive voice, right, the troops have been withdrawn, and changes it to active, I have withdrawn the troops. And I just love it as a a little beautiful example of the language of leadership, of taking responsibility, of saying, if
0: this failed, I wasn't gonna hide from it. Landings in the Cherbourg Havre area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based on the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Now, luckily for the world,
1: it succeeded. And, and the, the speech stayed in his wallet for several weeks. And finally, he found it and, and tossed it away. And his aide, Harry Butcher, said,
0: you know what, I'm, I'm, we're going to keep this one. He went on to become a significant and in many ways underrated president. I had no idea that Emperor Hirohito of Japan uh, was inclined to address the nation and, in a sense, apologize.
1: Indeed. Indeed. And on several occasions he seeks to apologize. And one of the things we see is that for an emperor who was earlier in his in his reign considered divine, he later renounced his divinity after after World War II, to admit failure, to admit sorrow, to admit shame, would have been so out of the ordinary that he almost would have had to abdicate. But he basically Working with the head of the imperial household, wrote an apology um, and used a word in Japanese that has not been used by Japan to describe their conduct during the war before or since. That is basically um, the equivalent of of deep, deep shame. And, and he writes a lot about about the shame he feels. And later, after the war, begins a, a an almost democratic um, modern process where he proceeds around the country and he visits the bombed out towns he stays in inns he walks among the people and his his visible palpable um, sorrow and shock at what he has led his country to um, almost made people feel sorry for him but but this but this apology speech it, it would have been revolutionary he probably would have had to abdicate and as opposed to serving out his term as, As Japan's longest-serving emperor, he would have been considered part of this cabal of warmongers.
0: Let's now go from the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to that moment in human history where we always had the Third World War. The most chilling, undelivered speech in your book relates to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Indeed.
1: Indeed. So at the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis, many of Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy's military advisors wanted an immediate airstrike, about 800 sorties against the missile sites. And Kennedy divided his his advisors into two groups. Uh, uh, Robert Kennedy was overseeing this process. And this, by the way, is the first use in history of the terms hawks and doves. Those in favor of the airstrikes were the war hawks. And those in favor of a blockade were called the Picasso Doves. And each group had to not only present a course of action, but lead their presentation with a speech presenting the course of action. And I I like this process because they were basically saying, if the president can't explain it satisfactorily to the American people, then maybe we need to evaluate this this course of action. But in the airstrike speech, there is a parenthetical that would have been filled in later. And this parenthetical says follows a description of first reports of action, and to me that parenthetical it could have been, you know, humanity's suicide note, because what we didn't know and only learned later was that those missile sites weren't being built. Many of them were already operational, and command of those sites rested in the in the hands of the commanders on the ground. Uh, they didn't have to call Moscow, and so had this had these airstrikes. Taken place, you could have really had an immediate nuclear counterstrike, wiping out much of America's eastern seaboard, wiping out America's base on Guantanamo Bay. It, it, could have, it could have really marked the end of humanity. The size, speed and secrecy of the deployment, the bare-faced falsehoods surrounding it, and the newly revealed character of the conspirators involved made plain that no appeal, no warning, no offer would shift them from their course. Prolonged delay would have meant enormously increased danger, and immediate warning would have greatly enlarged the loss of life on all sides. It became my duty to act. The tragedy here, self evidently, is in the loss of innocent lives on all sides. For the United States Government, I hereby accept responsibility for this action and pledge that all appropriate efforts will be made on request to assist the families of these innocent victims. One of the mysteries within the mystery in the book is anyone who could have written it denied having written this airstrike speech. And so in the book, I go in and try to find out, okay, who really did write it?
0: Did you find an answer?
1: Uh, I found, I, I, I feel pretty firm in my conclusion. Um, Ted Sorensen had long denied having written it. He was a, um, he was a conscientious objector to World War II. Uh, he often said it would be too abhorrent to even have considered writing this speech. And yet, and yet, uh, a lot of it is his. Um, now, whether he put the finishing touches on it or not, uh, we don't know. And Mick George Bundy, who was President Kennedy's national security advisor, was a talented writer in his own right. And he was uh, more in the airstrike group, at least initially. Um, but but I, I do conclude that Ted Sorensen had more of a hand in it than he would later admit.
0: I've absolved you from any guilt in uh, writing speeches delivered or undelivered for Trump, but uh, you did manage to get your hands on a copy of Hillary Clinton's draft victory
1: speech. I did, and first of all, I'm great. I'm grateful for the absolution. Um, yeah, that, that was a. I will say, when I started working for President Biden, I was in the Trump speechwriting office, and and. They'd cleaned out their desks, but wedged under the desk were several draft speeches uh, for President Trump. And they were, um, they were incredibly eye-opening. Um, and of course, I did the right thing and sent them to the National Archives as, as, as badly as I wanted to put them on Instagram. Uh, I, I refrained. <laughs> um, so, so Hillary's 2016 victory speech is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is, um, in parts, it is not spectacular. In parts, you see all of the cracks that ran through her campaign run right into her victory. Here's what we're gonna say to the Bernie Sanders supporters. And here's a paragraph for the elite media that that would have expected a larger victory. Uh, And here's something for the Trump supporters who I accidentally called deplorable. But it's missing that moment of of loft, of elevation, But but it finds it. And it finds it, strangely enough, in an email that was sent in unsolicited by a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet. And the email basically describes something that Hillary had been talking a little bit about, which is her mother's life. Her mother's life was very difficult. She had been basically uh, abandoned by her parents, sent across the country on a train ride at age eight with her three-year-old sister to live with her grandparents who made her effectively an indentured servant. And so the end of the speech was to have an imagined scene where Hillary, as an adult, sits down next to her eight-year-old mother on a scary train ride across the country with her little sister, and describes to her mother this difficult life she will have, and then says, "You know, these things will happen, and it will be hard, but you will have a daughter, and that daughter will grow up to be president of the United States." And I think it just would have been a, um, it would have been one of those moments that, that would be chiseled in marble. I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her, taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me, you will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the President of the United States. I am as sure of this as anything I have ever known. America is the greatest country in the world. And from tonight, going forward, together, we will make America even greater than it has ever
0: been for each and every one of us. It turned out that Hillary had to make a concession speech and uh, we've since come to realize how important these are for democracy, haven't we? A graceful concession.
1: Indeed, indeed. I I once described it as, um, it is is the miracle of democracy that we peacefully pass the torch, even to people who we worked incredibly hard to not elect. And, And then I said with President Trump, you know, throughout history in America, people passed the torch. No one ever lit a fuse. And, and unfortunately, President Trump lit a fuse. But but in fact, one of the chapters I have, which is a more obscure chapter, it's a, a former governor of Illinois, the state of Illinois in the late 1800s, was drummed out of office because he had done the right thing and he had pardoned the Haymarket prisoners. And he was denied the dignity of giving a farewell, a concession speech. And and it what was lost in that moment, I talk about in the book, was a beautiful, beautiful speech in which he not only justifies why he did the right thing, even at great political risk, but also the responsibility of the defeated party to sort of retreat to the wilderness and find the ideas that will bring them back to power. And the responsibility of the victorious party is to compromise on some of the beliefs that brought them into power to get something done. And it's a recipe that should still hold today.
0: I think it would be poignant and utterly appropriate if we ended by you reading us the final words that Kennedy had intended to deliver in Dallas.
1: Indeed. My last chapter is several different speakers, Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, Albert Einstein, um, speeches that they were working on at the moment of their death. And in Kennedy, he gave what was a foreign policy speech, but he was also delivering a warning about extremism and misinformation here at home. And so we, I will read in just a second about America being the watchman on the walls of world world freedom. But as you hear it um, also hear that what he wanted to be clear about is that the watchman doesn't just look out, the watchman also has to look in. So he was intending to end the speech that he was unable to deliver because his life was cut short by saying, we in this country in this generation are by destiny rather than choice, the watchmen on the walls of world freedom. We ask therefore, that we may be worthy of our power and responsibility, that we may exercise our strength with wisdom and restraint, and that we may achieve in our time and for all time, the ancient vision of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That must always be our goal, and the righteousness of our cause must always underlie our strength. For as was written long ago, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in
0: vain. I think we should follow that with a moment's silence, but uh, that's not a convention in radio. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Jeff Newsbaum, longtime speechwriter and now the author of a remarkable book, Undelivered. The Unseen Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History, published by Flatiron Books. Jeff, it's been a privilege.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond
1: the headlines on the ABC Listen app.